Hi, I'm Hiba from Medina, Saudi Arabia, and I'm a pharmacy resident from the University of Arizona Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona. Hi, I'm Abigail from Clinton, South Carolina, a student pharmacist from Presbyterian College School of Pharmacy in Clinton, South Carolina. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. episode, we talk with Dr. Julie Gropi and Dr. Todd Nesbitt about credentialing and privileging in healthcare organizations. Dr. Gropi is the National Program Manager, Clinical Pharmacy Practice Policy and Standards for the Department of Veteran Affairs in the VA Central Office in Washington, D.C. And Dr. Nesbitt is the Director of Pharmacy Patient Care Services at the Johns Hopkins Health System in Baltimore, Maryland. Hello, and welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. My name is Stuart Haynes. I'm Director of Pharmacy Professional Development, and my co-host today is Dr. Lori Fleming, Director of Experiential Affairs, and we're both from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Hi, everyone. Our topic today is credentialing and privileging. On our last episode of Pharmacy Forward, we spoke with Dr. Joe Sassine, who introduced us to the concept surrounding credentialing and privileging, and we are excited to continue our discussion today. And our guests today are Dr. Julie Gropi and Dr. Todd Nesbitt. Dr. Gropi is the National Program Manager, Clinical Pharmacy Practice Policy and Standards for the VA, and has been directly involved in the credentialing and privileging of pharmacists at VA medical centers. And Dr. Nesbitt is the Director of Pharmacy Patient Care Services at the Johns Hopkins Health System and led the development of their clinical pharmacy credentialing and privileging process several years ago. So the VA and Johns Hopkins Hospital have truly been leaders by developing rigorous processes for credentialing and privileging of pharmacists that have empowered pharmacists to practice at the top of their license and their training. So we're truly honored to be able to speak with both Dr. Nesbitt and Dr. Gropi today about this important topic. So Julie, Todd, welcome to Pharmacy Forward. It's great to be here, Stuart and Lori. I'm really excited to participate in the podcast today. Thank you very much, Lori and Stuart, for the opportunity to share some of our experiences in credentialing and privileging. It's also a pleasure to participate in this podcast with Julie, as I have long thought of our colleagues within the VA system as the pioneers in developing credentialing and privileging processes for clinical pharmacists. Thanks, Julie and Todd. To begin our discussion today, There's been a lot of push lately to credential and privileged pharmacists, not only for pharmacists who work in health systems, but also ambulatory clinics and community pharmacies. I think some of our listeners may be wondering what credentialing and privileging is and why the process is necessary. The terms credentialing and privileging are often used interchangeably, but actually have different meanings and implications. Credentialing is a process used to verify and validate professional licensure practice experience, and other preparation for specialized practice roles. For example, an organization may verify that a pharmacist has graduated from an accredited school of pharmacy, is licensed within the state, has completed residency training, 
or completed specialty certifications such as that offered by the Board of Pharmacy Specialties. Privileging is a process whereby an institution, having verified a practitioner's credentials, grants authority to that individual to provide specific patient care services. An organization may have a credentialing process without clinical privileging, but cannot have privileging without credentialing. In our organization, writing medication orders for patients is a specific clinical privilege granted by the medical board. Through credentialing and privileging, our clinical pharmacists have the authority to initiate, modify, continue, or discontinue drug therapy. Well, credentialing and privileging is really essential for the recognition of pharmacist's role as a provider of comprehensive medication management services. And as more pharmacists are integrated into care teams as providers and their role as the medication expert expands, it's important that we're held to the same standards as other providers. And when we're integrated into the health system's medical staff process for credentialing and privileging, it says to facility leadership that the pharmacist is accountable and they're responsible for the care they provide and are well-trained to do so. So, Julie, we had the privilege, and no pun intended, uh, to work together at the West Palm Beach VA Medical Center some years ago. And I know when I first joined the VA team, I had to submit a bunch of paperwork regarding my training and experience. And then a few weeks later, I was given a scope of practice document that outlined what my privileges would be that I had been granted basically what I was permitted to do in the course of my duties as a clinical pharmacy specialist. So can you give us a little background about the process for credentialing and privileging within the VA system for clinical pharmacists? And does the process differ from other health professionals? And are all pharmacists in the VA system credentialed and privileged? Within the VA system, we have numerous pharmacists. We have over 9,000 pharmacists in our system. Within the VA, all of our pharmacists are credentialed. And typically, the credentialing system for all of our pharmacists occurs when they first enter into the system, when they first start their new position. So this is for our clinical pharmacists, for our clinical pharmacy specialists, for our chiefs and associate chiefs of pharmacy. However, there is an advanced credentialing process for our clinical pharmacy specialists, recognizing the CPS as an advanced practice provider under the medical staff process. And that credentialing and privileging process is similar to that of other licensed independent practitioners. It's important to note that the pharmacist is very well trained and often has more training related to their medication management role than other advanced practice providers. And so when we're talking about the privileges that the pharmacist has, it really focuses on the services they're trained to provide. And this means that they perform functions defined under their scope of practice, either autonomously or independently in some activities. And the CPS can perform all functions of prescribing. So it includes initiating medications, modifying medications, discontinuing those medications, and also acting as a consultant for intensive medication management services. And the important thing to note is that when we think about scope of practice, it's more it's all encompassing for comprehensive medication management. So it doesn't just include prescriptive authority. There's things that cannot be uncoupled. And so it also includes things as such as physical and objective 
disease and medication assessment, the ordering of labs and diagnostic tests to assess the patient's condition, as well as the medication therapy, ordering consults or referrals to other team members as needed to help the patient maximize their drug outcomes. And those things that are outside of the expertise of the pharmacist requires team member collaboration. So an example of that would be uh, diagnosing a new disorder or providing psychotherapy as a part of a mental health practice. These are items that would typically not be included in the pharmacist's scope of practice. And all of these core elements are delineated by the practice area that the pharmacist works in. So no longer are our scopes of practice uh, medication-based or disease-based in focus. They really allow the pharmacist to provide services across the spectrum of patient care where the patient most needs it. And by credentialing this pharmacist in the care setting, it allows the team to identify any patient in which medication management is the primary target and to utilize the pharmacist to their fullest capacity. The process adopted at Johns Hopkins is the same for all clinicians working within our system, is the same for physicians, physician's assistants, dentists, nurse practitioners, and pharmacists. Scope of pharmacy practice differs from state to state and is defined by that individual state's Pharmacy Practice Act. Credentialing and privileging processes for pharmacies must be consistent with the language and spirit of these statutes. Within the state of Maryland, for example, Authority is delegated by one practitioner to the clinical pharmacist to manage drug therapy. Most often, this is a physician colleague delegating that authority. This is where I believe that we are most different from our VA colleagues. Our clinical pharmacists develop drug therapy management agreements signed by the respective physicians and pharmacists and submitted to the state medical board and board of pharmacy describing their professional relationship. The specific responsibilities of the clinical pharmacist, in turn, are defined by broadly written protocols that list specific medications and associated laboratory tests that the pharmacist may prescribe. It's important to note that these protocols are not algorithms that predefine the action of the pharmacist. Rather, they allow the initiation, modification, continuation, or discontinuation of drug therapy based on the pharmacist's individual clinical judgment. Perhaps an example might help to illustrate and tie these ideas together for the listeners. One of our clinical pharmacy specialists working within the surgical intensive care unit has developed a drug therapy management agreement with his intensivist colleagues. Upon the review and recommendation of the hospital's credentials committee, she has been granted clinical privileges by the hospital's medical board to manage immunosuppression for transplant patients, to manage parenteral nutrition therapy, to manage anticoagulation therapy, and to adjust all drug doses based on therapeutic drug monitoring or assessment of renal function. Thanks, Julie and Todd, for talking about those specifics for us. To transition us just a bit, many of our graduates, both students and residents, are interested in working in progressive pharmacy practice environments where they can really make a difference in patient care. In order to be privileged to order labs, adjust drug treatments, or make patient referrals in your health system, what are the kinds of credentials that you think a pharmacist needs to have? 
In other words, what advice do you have for a new pharmacy graduate or even a PGY-1 pharmacy resident about the training and experience that's needed in order to be granted an advanced scope of practice at your institution, Todd? Within our organization, these privileged activities are performed by clinical pharmacy specialists. The credentials required for these clinicians include Doctor of Pharmacy degree, PGY-1 pharmacy residency, PGY-2 specialized residency, and board certification by the Board of Pharmacy Specialties. Certainly, this is a high standard and necessitates a significant investment in time, energy, and even expense. That said, we believe that this is a standard that patients expect from their physicians when receiving medical care. Why should patients expect less from their clinical pharmacists? So the qualifications that each pharmacist possesses to meet the position will differ amongst the clinical pharmacy specialist, but includes a lot of different things, such as past clinical experience, board certification, and postgraduate residency training. So there's no one requirement for the pharmacist to possess a particular type or quantity of qualifications um, for the position, but rather they have to demonstrate in their review of their credentials that they have the knowledge, skills, and expertise that prepares them for the role. So Todd, Julie, I would like to talk a little bit about the financial incentives and costs. So obtaining the necessary credentials can be costly and there are ongoing costs to maintaining board certification, for example. What are the financial incentives from the perspective of both the individual, that means the pharmacist who earns these credentials, as well as from the institutional standpoint? What do you see is the value in seeking pharmacists with credentials beyond pharmacy licensure and the degree? Yeah, thank you, Stuart. That's a great question. At the Johns Hopkins Hospital, we require residency training or equivalent clinical experience for all clinical pharmacists. We require board certification through the Board of Pharmacy Specialties for all pharmacists routinely providing direct patient care. We do provide financial support through our department for BPS certification, and we reimburse all associated expenses upon successful completion of the examination process. We truly believe that the value of these credentials is the assurance that our patients are receiving care by individual pharmacists who possess the requisite knowledge, skills, and abilities to manage complex drug therapy regimens. We feel that our patients can be assured that the trust that they place in us is fairly earned and well-deserved. Well, it's really the responsibility of every pharmacist to ensure that they have the appropriate credentials to be able to treat patients in this direct patient care role. And many of our VA facilities offer, do offer financial reimbursement for board certification. So if you study for the exam and if you take the exam and you pass it, then many of them will actually provide you reimbursement. But the pharmacist is responsible for maintaining those credentials over time. Great. To wrap up our discussion today, thank you both for clarifying the terminology surrounding credentialing and privileging for us, for helping us to understand the processes and intricacies within differing health systems, and for walking us through some of the financial implications as well. Thank you, Todd and Julie, for joining us today on our podcast. 
Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Julie Todd. It, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Pharmacy Forward podcast and, and sharing your considerable experience with us. You know, I hope our listeners will want to learn more about credentialing and privileging. And if you do, we hope you'll check out our show notes, which has links to online resources, which is posted with this Pharmacy Forward podcast. So thanks for listening. We hope you join us in our next episode. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Chase Board, Lily Van Chang, Ha Fan, Alex Mills, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes. Thank you.